Well, welcome all of you. Welcome back to the Alpha Course. Welcome to you watching live stream. It is great to have you here this week. How many of you guys here for the very first time? We're not able to make it last week or had no intention of coming last week. Okay. Well, great. It is wonderful to have you here. Yes. Thank you for coming. Well, uh, I'm going to give us a quick review of last week. I'm going to do my best to do that. Um, uh, if, uh, if you would like, if you missed last week, didn't get to watch it at all, you can go to our Lakeview Christian Center YouTube channel and you can, you can catch up uh, with that. If you'd like friends to come, it's never too late. We've had folks show up at the last week of Alpha and just amazing things have happened. And so we are just grateful, so grateful that you are here um, in this world that's just getting busier and busier. It seems like, this is an interesting thought, in a world that is getting busier and busier, we take way too little, woefully too little time to think about the most important questions of life. And so hopefully you are here because you're wanting to hit the pause button, take some time to think about things that if, this, if the Bible is true, holds the answers for the most important questions in life. And so, thank you for being here. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm Frank Loria. Uh, I just, uh, I sold my business about a year ago. I am now uh, one of the pastors on staff here. It sounds so strange after being the owner of a business for 44 years to not say I'm, I'm a... I'm a pseudo-pastor. I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm trying to get this right. So if you'll, if you'll just be kind to me tonight and just smile at me. Um, but let me just give you a quick, just a quick review from last week. What we talked about mostly last week was just is faith, that all of us live by faith. There's not a soul on this planet that draws air that doesn't live by faith. And that faith is not necessarily a religious thing, though it is, it can be. We do... Everything, most everything we do by faith. And so uh, I wanted to just give you a little bit of an example of, of how the, the, just a basic model of logic. And if I turn this on, this will work. Um, so everyone has a worldview or a philosophy of life. It's a grid whereby we try to make sense out of life. It's a metrics. It's a, it's a way of thinking that that, as I said, we try to make one and one equal two. This makes sense to me. So it's so every one of us, whether you're highly educated, lowly educated, you live in the United States, you live in Africa, you live in Europe, you live in the Philippines, it doesn't matter what you are, your intelligence level, how far you've gone in your education or career, everyone has a philosophy of life. Everyone has a worldview, and that is based upon presuppositions. We suppose certain things to be true, and we suppose certain things to not be true. And every one of those is based on faith. It's not blind faith. It's not necessarily a rational faith, but it is faith nonetheless. And faith always has an authority. Who says so? What's the authority? What? that brings me to that place of belief. But here's, here's the kicker. All authority is validated or invalidated by evidence. Okay, and you and I, we live this way 
all the time through this day, though you did not realize it, more than likely you are processing this information. I believe this. I believe it by faith. I believe it because of this, based upon this. Again, like I talked about last week, you get in your car, you fly in a plane, you go under anesthesia, you take particular pharmaceutical medications. You do all that by faith, hoping. I mean, did you watch the pharmacist put every little pill in that little body did, bottle? Did you see that? No, but you believed he did or she did. Yeah, we hope so. But, but we do that by faith. It's how we live. And, 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 it's, you know, and, and I think the older we get, sometimes the more evidence we need. Now, that's always not going to be true. But as kids, don't we just believe everything? You know, we believe most, we believe everything our parents tell us and we believe, you know, anybody that's, you know, when we're riding a tricycle, if they're riding a bicycle, we believe everything they say because they are so advanced, right? Um, so, I mean, but you know, remember, remember this statement, I'm going to let you finish it for me. Step on a crack. Who the heck came up with that? I mean, where, I mean. Anybody not heard step on a crack, you break your mother's back. Oh, gosh. Okay. You guys don't get out enough. All right. So, but I mean, there's things as a kid, we just believe them because we believe them. How, how, how about this one right here? If you swallow watermelon seeds, an entire watermelon will grow inside you. Did, do you remember that one? Right? And, and, then, and then mom, mom brought you to the grocery store. And then uh, it's like... She's giving birth in my, you know, right. So, I mean, this, these are some of the things that, um, now, how about this? If you urinate in a the pool, there's a special dye that turns it bright red so that everyone will know. Right, right? Okay, we, we heard all these things, right. Now, but here's the thing. Who has, who has never peed in a pool? I mean... You're, you were in the Navy. You pee in everything. I don't know. I mean, you just... These, I mean, these are just crazy things, but I mean... Uh, yeah, I mean, what was it like when you found out? Was it a sad day? I mean, th th this poor kid just went to the funeral. He just... <laughs> just... Rest in peace. I don't know. Well, anyway, so, so I said, you know, we, we make faith decisions. We believe things all the time. And I mean, what, the fact of the matter is we don't know. We really don't know for a fact that we're each going to make it back to our pillows tonight. We don't know that for a fact. Okay, I, that's not the undertaker. So, I, uh, so, I mean, but here's, here's an interesting statistic. Over 150,000 people on the planet who woke up this morning died before they or will die before they make it to bed tonight over 7700 on average americans now if you think i'm telling you that to scare you you're right i really am i want you to pay attention <laughs> no um but but that's just the fact of the matter the death rate is 100 percent nobody gets off this planet alive and so it's important I think we would all agree just based on human experience 
that we start thinking about important questions, whether you're in your teens or your 20s or you're in your 70s or your 80s. None of us knows where we are. If you weren't here last week, we talked about the dash and the line, the dash being physical life, and none of us know where, how close to the end of our last, to our last heartbeat we actually are. We have no idea. But we, most of us, the vast majority of us believe that there's something on the other side of our last heartbeat that's going to last forever, and we hope it's going to be good. Now, the Bible says that, and I'm not asking you to believe the Bible, but the Bible says that God has a plan for our lives in the dash, even in the midst of the most grievous experiences of life, in the midst of the most horrific, heart-crushing losses. He has a plan for us even in the midst of that, in the greatest of joys, in the most crushing of sorrows, he is there and he's promised, whether it's true or not, that he has come to give us life abundantly. Now, let me just tell you real quickly again what Alpha is for those of you who weren't here last week and what Alpha isn't. Again, Alpha is an opportunity to come and think together, to look at the Bible, to see what it has to say. Look, if you leave here, and I hope you'll come for the remaining six weeks, but if you leave here not believing a word of this, that's, that's, that's your prerogative. But at least you'll know what it says, and you'll know what it doesn't say. You won't be leaving that to just, well, I think I heard it said this or that, and that goofy story about this or that. No, there are things in here that affect every breath that we take. And so it'll be good just for us to come together and find out what it says. And so Alpha's an opportunity to find out, what does it say? And then is, should I believe this? Can, I just, can we just come together and think and reason together? And I just heard last week, you guys had a great time at your tables, and I'm very excited about this. Alpha is not an opportunity, this is not a membership drive for Lafayette Christian Center. Okay, it has nothing to do with this church meetings or anything like this. This is, we, we believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And if he is, we want as many folks to hear this as possible. This is not an opportunity for, to, to get you to change your church or your denomination or get in your pocket. Again, this is our joy. This is underwritten joyfully by this church. And so many that have been so positively affected by it. So, again, don't think somebody's trying to pull a fast one here. I, first, don't believe a word I'm telling you. There's no, you don't know who I am. Why would you believe me? Um, but you're just going to have to find out for yourself that there are no hooks. And so you can just sit back, relax, and hopefully enjoy yourself and learn and be challenged as all of us are. So tonight's topic, uh, session two, who is Jesus may sound like a dumb question, but uh, it's not. Uh, page 12 is where we will spend some time. But I believe, personally, I believe in a Jesus that did not exist. I created, uh, uh, you know, I, I created a based on a true story Jesus. You know, you've, you, have you seen the movies? You know, based on a true story. Uh, it's, not, it's not true, but they just cobble together thoughts that it's got enough of it of information in there in fact but i believed in a jesus that basically i had created myself but when i was introduced to the the jesus of 
the Bible and history, my whole life was changed. Uh, when I became a follower of Christ about 48 years ago, my life got turned right side up. But interesting, it was then that I began to look and see and look for the evidence to see if Christianity is reasonable. Is it reasonable? Or do I, did, I, did I just check my brain at the door to believe something that made me feel good? And so tonight, when we talk about who is Jesus, we're going to look at what's the evidence to support who he is. So let's go back to our model of logic. Everyone has a worldview that's based on faith, that finds its, its basis in an authority and is validated by evidence. So one that would hold a Christian worldview would be a follower of Christ. His faith position would be that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And that is based upon the Bible. Now, the question is then, if the Bible is the authority, what is the evidence? Is there evidence to support the, this amazing statement that this guy that lived in Israel some 2,000 years ago was actually eternal God incarnated in flesh who came to deliver the world from our rebellion against God and one another. So on, on page 12, you've got there, he existed. Now, no real critically thinking, rational, unbiased historian believes that Jesus was a fable, that he didn't actually walk the planet. Uh, there are so many extra biblical accounts. When I say extra biblical, I mean outside the pages of the Bible, accounts of Jesus by people that were pro and people that were totally antagonistic to Christianity or Christ in particular. Uh, you had lots of historians. For sake of time, I'm just going to give you one. The gentleman that was considered probably the greatest historian of Rome, a guy by the name of Cornelius Tacitus. Can you see that we're related? I mean, I think you can see that. Um, <laughs> But this is what Tacitus said in his Annals of Rome, written in about 116 uh, AD. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report that he had Rome burned, that is Nero, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilate. Okay, now I'm just giving you a little taste here of myriads of historical evidences that Jesus walked the earth when he walked the earth. So, but, but let's just talk about, but what about the Bible? How do we know that the New Testament hasn't been changed over the years. How do we know that what we're holding in our hands is actually what was written? I mean, we're talking 2,000 years here. I mean, couldn't, couldn't it be just completely changed? And how can we even begin to believe that what we have is what was actually written? I think that's a reasonable question. But there is tremendous evidence. Now, there's a science. Now, if you've got your pens, I, I, it'd be interesting for you to write a couple things down here if you'd like to. 
Um, but there's a, there's a science called textual criticism. It is a literary science called textual criticism. And inside of this literary science called textual criticism, it's something called the bibliographical test. And in the bibliographical test, there are three particular areas that make up the bibliographical test. One of them is the quantity of manuscripts, right? How many existing manuscripts do we have? Now, we don't have any of the originals. There is no way to possibly keep those original documents through the centuries. But what we have is documents upon documents. So in the bibliographical test, whatever the ancient literature is, the first test is how many manuscripts do we have? You know, manuscripts essentially means manu, hand, scripts, writings. How many handwritings do we have? Second one, quality of manuscripts. So when you take those manuscripts that you have, do they say the same thing? Do they say, say close to the same thing? Or do they contradict one another? So the quality is not the kind of how pretty they are or the kind of shape that they're in. It's are they consistent or are they inconsistent? All right. So quantity, how many do we have? Quality, the consistency of the writings. And then third, the time span. How much time is there between the original autograph, the writer, and the beginning of seeing manuscripts? All right. So quantity, quality, and time span. Now, I want us to take a look, and we're going we're gonna to take a look at, at some, again, woefully too little time, but I'm going to give you an example of a few famous ancient historians. All right, so let's just take a look at it. Here's, here's Herodotus. He was a Greek historian, wrote about the, the Greco-Persian Wars, wrote between 488 and 428 B.C., the earliest copy. Now remember, what are our three tests? Quantity, quality, and time span. Quantity, quality, and time span. Written 488, 428. Earliest copy we have is 900 AD. You get an idea here? What's our space? About 1,300 years between Herodotus writing and we have a copy. And how many copies do we have? We've got about 117 copies. Okay? And they seem to be relatively consistent. All right? Let's look at another one. Thucydides wrote the Peloponnesian Wars. It's about the same thing here, 460 to 400. We start seeing copies at around 900, 1,350-year time lapse, and we've got about 104 remaining or existent, extant means existing copies. Okay? Uh, Livy was a Roman historian, wrote the history of Rome, wrote between 59 BC and AD 17. We have some copies in 400, so we have a time lapse of, you know, pretty good, only about 400 years. Uh, and we have 169 copies. And so you see, we're building our understanding of history by these manuscripts. Nobody questions Livy or Herodotus or Thucydides. Nobody's taken any of this stuff to court. But this is... What happens? Now, what's another one? Homer. We're familiar with Homer. Anybody read Homer? Remember Homer? Okay, not, not that Homer. Um, Homer, this is his Iliad, the Trojan Wars. Remember Iliad and the Odyssey, the Greek poet. 
800 BC, 400 BC, earliest copy, time lapse 400 years. They have just unearthed, matter of fact, those, your, your uh, study guide needs to be updated. They've unearthed recently a bunch of copies of Homer. I mean, that's impressive. That's pretty impressive. Well, let's look at the New Testament. The New Testament, which is the testimony of the life of Jesus Christ and the history of the church and the teachings of the church, written between 40 and 100 AD. We, the earliest manuscripts, we have partial manuscripts around 130. We begin to see full manuscripts around 350. So we have a, you know, we have a time lapse between 340 and 300 years. The number of existing manuscripts we have is 23,986, okay? And when you look at the, remember, quantity, quality, and time span, when it comes to quality, consistency, it's 99.5%. And the, the 5% has nothing to do with the teachings or the doctrine, but it would be grammar and those types of things. Every once in a while, you'd get a little zealous scribe that would add a little bit here. But we have so many copies in Latin and in, in, uh, in Greek. We have so many copies that we can take all of them and combine them and come up with a, a whole lot more reasonable to believe than Herodotus or Homer or any of those. So if you just put the New Testament on the same playing field as any other ancient historian, uh, this, this is far away, a runaway. This would be like putting a 100-pound football team to play the New Orleans Saints. Okay? It, would, it, it wouldn't be pretty. The 100-pound team would smoke them. Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry, Zach. Uh, I mean, it just, it's, it's, there's no contest. There's no contest there. Again, does that mean it's true? I, I'm not making that statement. I'm just telling you, if you just want to come in unbiased and look at this, this is what you see. Just based on the science that is agreed upon, the Bible crushes, not that there's a competition, but the Bible crushes every historic manuscript in terms of the numbers of copies and in terms of the science of textual criticism. So, uh, I want to say, F.F. Bruce, who is, a, who is a professor of New Testament studies at the University of Manchester, he, this is what he wrote. He says, concerning New the New Testament documents, he said, it was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers, that is the disciples, had to reckon with. There were others less, less well disposed who were also conversant with the facts of the ministry of the death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak willful manipulation of the facts, okay? They, they couldn't risk it, which would at once ex be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points, one of the strong points in the original apostolic preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers. They not only said, we are witnesses of these things, 
but also as you yourselves know. Now catch this. Had the tendency been to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible pressure, pressure, pressure pardon me, of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. In other words, these things are taking place while people are still alive to be able to say, that never happened. But these documents are beginning to show up at the same time that people that lived these experiences and knew this Jesus. And so uh, that's what is so important about the, the number and the, the time span between some of the copies. So, so on page 14, we see some things here that says the Bible declares Jesus Christ is fully human. I'm just going to run through this real quick. You can look at those scriptures that he had a human body. He got tired, hungry, he had human emotions, anger, love, sadness, human experiences. He was tempted. He learned. He worked. He obeyed. But here is the real question. Was he more than just a man? Was he more than just a man? Was he more than just a great human? Was he more than just a religious teacher? Was he? Well, on page 15, I want you to look at some of the things that what Jesus had to say about himself. And I want you to, if you would, write a couple of things down here. So from the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter. Now, I want you to understand just some things. So the Bible was not originally written with chapters and verses. As time went on, to be able to find the annotations of particular lo or locating things in the Bible, they began to put chapters and verses. So it would be much easier to find specific statements. And so in the sixth chapter of John, in the 35th verse, this is what is recorded by John that Jesus said. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, again, he's not talking about a physical hunger or a physical thirsting. He is talking about just pretty much what we talked about last week when we looked at some famous individuals and their quotes like, I got it all, but I got a hole inside of me. There's a God-shaped hole in me. There's got to be more than this. Somebody tricked me. I think everybody should get rich and have everything they've ever wanted in their life so they can find out that that is not the answer. Okay? Jesus said, I am. He did not say, he did not say keeping the rules is the bread of life. Going to church is the bread of life. I'm not saying you should try to break rules or not go to church, but I'm telling you, he is saying, I am the bread of life. You come to me, you shall not hunger. Who believes in me shall never thirst. So what is he saying here? Just write this down. He says, he has come to fill our internal emptiness. He has come to give us, as John 10.10 10 states, life abundantly. Not telling you to believe that. That's what we've got recorded that, as, as to what he said. He said he comes to fill our emptiness. Let's look at another one of those. John 8.12. Here's another statement Jesus makes about himself. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. What is he saying here? Seems that he's saying that he gives direction and purpose. 
I'm the light. If you follow me, you'll not walk in darkness because who knows where they're going when they walk in. Do you have any idea? I mean, you can be very familiar with your house, but if it's pitch black, there's no telling what you're falling on top of or over. Shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He claims to give direction and purpose to life. Let's look at another one. Jesus says, and I'm underlining these points because I want us to see he is pointing to himself. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, the yoke that he's talking about there is the yoke of an oxen. Okay, that would be put over to uh, oxen to plow the fields. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, that's either a true statement or a false statement. But if this is truth, I would have to argue that it's what we're seeing of the evidences that are beginning to pile up here. This is just too important to leave to a glancing thought. And let me get back to my whatever. So what is he saying here? What does Jesus appear to be saying here? He says, I've come to give you peace. Catch this, belonging, and you will never be alone. You know what people complain about today, more, just about more than anything? Loneliness. We, we got our phones. We got our phones. Um, and I just got a text. Um, we've got our phones, but we're lonely. We've never been more lonely with more outlets for interaction. And Jesus says, I come to fill that loneliness with myself, to give you a sense of belonging. The suicide rate is sky high. You know why it is? Not just that people are alone, they don't feel like they belong. And the result of that is such anxiety. I could go into that a whole lot more, but I'm not going to do it. Let's, let's look at one other thing. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives, in, lives and believes in me shall never die. Do, do you see the emphasis that he makes on himself? I am in me. In me, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. And we know we're all going to die. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's not talking about you're never going to die physically. He's talking about what you guys raised your hand about last week. That Do you believe there's something on the other side of your last heart that's going to last forever? And you hope it's going to be good. That's what he's talking about. You'll never die. The earth suit is going down. Okay, It's already begun. Right? But the earth suit is going down once and for all. But that's just the material part of us. The soul and the spirit's another part of us all together. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you are eternally secure with God. If, okay, if you believe, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, you believe in me, you live even if you die. But then he puts this question to the woman who made the statement to, to do you believe this? That's the catch. Do you 
believe this. Now, in the next couple of weeks, if you come back, or even if you don't come back, we're going to be talking about this word, believe, that it's a lot deeper, broader, higher, wider word than we talk about. This is not just some passing glance of, sure, not some just, oh yeah, sure, but I'm not paying any attention to this really. Believe means more than just giving a passing okay to. It means jumping in full throttle with. And so Jesus' teaching, as you can say, and I just made a big deal of it, centers on himself. And let me just share this with you real quickly about other religions, because we talked about other religions last week and what they teach and all those things. We're going to talk about that. I think next week I'm going to give you a comparative religion entire class. If anybody wants to take comparative religion, let me save you a lot of money. And in five minutes, I will, I will help you see the difference between world religions. But the interesting thing about Jesus and other religious teachers of other faiths is that you can remove Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna. You can remove all of those teachers and their teaching still stands. Their teaching is not affected in the least bit. But if you remove Jesus from his teachings, all of Christianity crumbles. Because he's not teaching that, he's not teaching about your works and your karma and your dharma and all these other things. He is saying that I am these things. Buddha would have never, Muhammad would have never, Krishna would have never said, oh, no, no, don't look to me. He would say, they would say, look to my teaching. Jesus says, if you look at my teaching, you're looking at me. You can't remove the two. Does, does that make sense? So everything he says is based on him. Not saying that makes it true. I'm just telling you it's different. So his teaching centered around himself. Uh, there's so many claims that he makes to his being God incarnate. I'm just going to touch on one of them right now from, from the Gospel of John again. Jesus said this. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give, catch this terminology, I give eternal life them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand I and the father are one now when he said that, the Jews picked up stones again. What's that tell you? They, they'd done that before. To stone him. And Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, to the Jews... The thought of God becoming a man, Messiah, sure, but that's a man. Messiah being God himself coming to rescue his people was unthinkable. And so they fully knew this man is not claiming just to be a good teacher. 
He's not claiming just to be a, a greater person or a just a prophet. He is claiming to be God incarnate. And they knew that. And he was burying himself just on evidence he himself gave of who he was. So, But the question is, who was he? Was he who he claimed to be? Or was he not? Well, let's just, just do something here just called a decision tree analysis, where we just break things down into their, their simplest components to try to come to a conclusion. Jesus claimed to be God. Now, we can go for that, that he either wasn't or he was. Right? Now, if he wasn't, he knew it. Or he thought he was and he wasn't. Okay? Now, if he knew it, he was a liar. If he knew he was just full of it, he is just buffaloing everybody. He is just having a ball, just bringing all these people to, to believe this nonsense that he's God. Now, if he's a liar, he's also a hypocrite because he's always saying, truly, truly, I say to you, this is the truth. I am the truth. He's making all these statements about his validity and his veracity. So if he knew it, he was a liar. He was a hypocrite. He was a demon. It's a demon because he's telling me, I'm, I'm the way to get to God. But I'm really not. And he knew it. Okay? So if he knew it, he was a liar, a hypocrite, a demon. And last but not least, he's a fool. Because he dies absolutely knowing what he was teaching was a pile of rubbish. Maybe he didn't know it. Maybe he thought he was God. Um, he was a nut. That's what it is. He's a lunatic. He's a lunatic. He was out of his mind. He belonged someplace else than free among normal pe- being free among normal people. He was sin- but sincerely deluded. Now look, no one could stand the scrutiny of this man for any amount of time in front of some of the wisest people that he did under duress and threat of life and not just fall into the fetal position. No way. Now, C.S. Lewis, we talked a little bit about C.S. Lewis last week. And Lewis, as I mentioned to you, was an atheist, did not believe in God at all, And just through the sheer weight of the facts, came to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And in this uh, book he wrote, uh, I believe from Mere Christianity, this is is what Lewis said. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. I guess that would mean he'd be a deviled egg. Um, um, You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. He said, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. And call him a de- and 
you can spit at him and call him a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Whoa. Interesting. He claimed to be God. These things are difficult to believe. But what if it's true? What if he is God come in the flesh? Then he is Lord, creator of all things. Now remember, I'm back in, 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 uh, in John chapter 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And then Jesus tags the question, do you believe this? And so if he is Lord, that means we all have a decision to make about his purported lordship. And we either reject that or accept that. We reject it actively or passively, or we accept that. And so these are the, these are the claims that are there. Now... So Jesus, well, what are the things, what are the claims that he made? What are some of the things that, that, that he said that would make us look at him and see that, okay, I'm going to give this a further listen to. Well, we see his teachings, purported miracles, his character. We see prophecies from the Hebrew scriptures written six, seven, eight hundred plus years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. Fascinating. We're going to go into those and in week five, but Christianity rises and falls upon one piece of evidence. Did he come out of the tomb alive that first Easter morning? If not, Christianity is a farce. It is not to be believed. It is dangerous. It is, a, it is a fantasy foisted upon humanity for the last 2,000 years. If he did not come out of the grave. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who was a former persecutor of the church, he wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament. Um, and what he says to a church in Corinth is this he says if Christ has not been raised our preaching is useless and so is your faith more than that we are found to be false witnesses about God for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead and he didn't what sets Christianity apart from everything else if true is that Christianity purports a live savior, not a dead prophet. If he is raised from the dead and is alive, ascended into heaven, this book says what it does about him and you and me. 
I would argue, and I think you would argue now maybe a little bit more as well, that it is important to spend more time considering in this short bit of time that we have on the planet what is going to happen on the other side of my last heartbeat. What is happening now? Does, does who Jesus is really have anything to do with how I live my life now? And if this scripture is true, and if he is raised from the dead, I can only give you the most emphatic yes that I, that I, I can. That's all I can, can do. So, so we see that here. So, but many have tried to explain away the resurrection. On page 17, you'll see this. Now, most will agree that the body was not found and the body has not been found. Then where was it? Where is it? Well, there are some arguments that come along and uh, there, there's been some, some incredible books that have been written. I want to show them. Tonight, we've got a copy of a book for you by, um, by a guy named Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was an atheist. Um, I can't recall if he went to the University of Indiana, but where he was. But he, but, he was, but he kept going to these free speech alleys where Christians were purporting Christ. And, and he just kept knocking it down, knocking it down. And they said, okay, Josh, prove to us that we're wrong. Well, Josh McDowell tried to prove that it was wrong. And Josh McDowell today has probably spoken in more countries and written more books about the resurrection of Jesus Christ than most people. Now, this is, these are the cliff notes of Josh McDowell. His books would stand taller than me on my shoulders, probably. And so this book, More Than a Carpenter, is, is, is something we would love for you to have tonight if you'd like to have it. Um, it's just a, a gift to you and for you to, again, don't believe a word I'm telling you. Look this up. This is too important. Who the heck am I? Look this up for yourself and find out. Um, is there more to life in this than this? And is Jesus who that more is the one who has come to give me life? Uh, Frank Morrison was an English journalist um, total atheist, and he, was, he set out to write a book to completely debunk Christianity. Um, this, is, this is a great, I, I, this is great. The first, chapter, the first chapter of the book, can you read that? Can you see that? Uh, I can't see that from here. Um, the first chapter of the book is called The Book That Refused to Be Written. And instead of writing a book, to once and for all wipe Christianity out, he wrote the book that he didn't want to write. And uh, Frank Morrison was a great. Lee Strobel, another atheist. Uh, I could just go on and on. Uh, we've got a book for you uh, next week called The Case for Easter. Lee Strobel, um, chief legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, uh, got a degree, a master's in legal studies from Yale University. Um, atheist his wife became a follower of christ he had to set her straight so he went on an investigative journey across the world to be able to prove to his poor wife little simple-minded wife that she was believing fables well unfortunately for lee no fortunately for lee um he came to see that jesus is who he says he is just on the preponderance of evidence but let me tell you this the preponderance of evidence means nothing 
if you or I don't see a need in our lives, if we don't recognize a hole in our lives that nothing on this earth can fill. Um, one other piece of evidence that we have for you tonight, if you'd like tonight, like is, is the American Medical Association public, published in their American Medical Association journal many years ago. Um, several doctors authored it. Uh, on the physical death of Jesus Christ and what actually happens at in a crucifixion. This is this fascinating article, if you'd like to have that as well. But there were many people that thought, no, this didn't happen. And some of the arguments says, well, they went to the wrong tomb. It was early in the morning and the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, okay, but if they went to the wrong tomb and they went back saying, he's not there. Well, how long is it going to take to say, no, he's not there, ladies. He's there. Uh, maybe the disciples stole the body. That's what happened. The disciples came in. They overtook the Roman guard that was there. They, you know, these guys that, what did they do when Jesus was crucified? They went back to work. They ran. But they took, they, they overtook these these trained Roman soldiers took this 2,000-pound stone that stood over the mouth of the tomb. They rolled it away, and they took him, and they stole his body. And then they died, every one of them, believing it was a lie. I don't think so. Uh, the Jewish officials, maybe they saw that. Now, that would make sense. If they take the body, then they can deal with all these other crazy stories, right? Well, if they would have taken the body, when everybody starts going, hallelujah, he's alive, they would just go, hallelujah, he's not, and here's his body. Uh, well, maybe, maybe he swooned. You know, like when people saw the Beatles, you know, he just, maybe just passed out. Um, now think about this. You were, if you were to read, and if I had the time to talk to you about crucifixion and what actually happens there, there's hardly any blood left in you. There is no way this man or any man that went through the tortures of pre-crucifixion and then crucifixion would have been able to come out of that tomb, unwrap himself from the the uh, claw, grave cloths, about a hundred pounds full of spices around his body, move the stone, overcome the guards, and appear to his disciples as the risen Lord of glory. With holes in his feet, holes in his wrist, spear through his side, back made of ribbons by the beatings and the whippings. Many have tried to explain that away and come to the place where they realize he must be who he says he is. And that's a question that echoes through the canyons of time to every one of us tonight. Uh, the question of the resurrection and Jesus and who he is, is that question that each of us has, will have to, why not now deal with? In Matthew's gospel, in the 16th chapter, uh, Jesus asks this question. 
It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say the prophet Elijah. Still others, the prophet Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And I think, as I said a minute ago, that question to these disciples echoes through the canyons of time to February 27th, 2024, into the hearing of every one of us here and every one of us watching to ask ourselves this question. Not who do you box check say Jesus is on a Sunday? Or who do you give lip service say that Jesus is when times are difficult? But who do you say with full-throated, faith-filled conviction that he is? It's a question for us to ask tonight. And a question that I'm thinking about too that kind of hit me today that I wanted you guys to think about as well as I close up here when I can get to it. What if who we say Jesus is determines who Jesus says we are? What if who we say Jesus is determines who Jesus says we are? Now that's an interesting question. Who do we say he is? Who is he? Now, what are the ramifications for you and me if Jesus Christ did not stay in that tomb 2,000 years ago and is alive and resurrected God incarnate? What does that have to do with me in my life? Have I possibly not critically examined who Jesus is closely enough or at all? Well, next week we're going to address this, and I, and I, I hope you will do this. Just would you come back to this one more night? <laughs> uh, next week, I would say next week and the following week are just two of the centerpiece evenings for us. Uh, next week we'll talk about why did Jesus die. I thought I knew. I didn't know. I really didn't know. And I learned things, and I think it will be helpful to you as well to go deeper and think about what are the ramifications for my life if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. So it's not too late to invite other folks. If you want folks to come, you want folks to watch with you live stream, but uh, we're just so grateful for your coming. Uh, if, you, if you want a copy of this tonight, we've run out. We can get copies of this to you, copies of More Than a Carpenter. We're just so grateful for you guys being here. Thank you so much. Let's take a quick break and let's get back to our tables for some discussion. Thank you for being here.